0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Series on Ideas. You can subscribe to the Van Leer series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm delighted to welcome Edward Slingerland to the show today to talk about his engaging new book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Edward Slingerland is the Distinguished University Scholar and Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia and the author of Trying Not to Try, Ancient China, Modern Science, and the Power of Spontaneity. Edward Slingerland, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Before we begin talking about your book, Ted, tell us a bit about yourself. Who and what were some of the strongest influences on your own intellectual development?
0: Ooh, (laughs) that's a good question. Um, I'm originally American uh, from New Jersey, uh, but I moved to California in my 20s. And so if I'm from anywhere, it's probably Northern California. And around that is when I made my switch from the sciences to Chinese studies. So, uh, you know, I started as a sinologist and specialist in early Chinese philosophy and religion. And then gradually uh, after grad school drifted back into the sciences. And so uh, the gateway drug for that was cognitive linguistics. Uh, conceptual metaphor theory. So Lakoff and Johnson, uh, this book called Philosophy in the Flesh had an enormous impact on my career in terms of giving me new methodologies to kind of explore the questions I was already interested in, but with new methods grounded in the cognitive sciences. And that just became a whole new, uh, I think my, I'm sorry, my colleagues would see it as a detour um i really saw it as a new direction forward in my my scholarship so then i started following the, that trail of crumbs deeper and deeper into the sciences i got into behavioral neuroscience then i got interested in how why the mind had the structure that it has so that got me interested in evolutionary theory and then uh i arrived at ubc in british columbia and started hanging out with people who were very deeply involved in gene culture co-evolutionary theory so i've i've drifted now into a strange space where uh i'm hanging out primarily with psychologists uh neuroscientists people who do cultural evolutionary theory and i'm applying these tools to the stuff i used to do to early chinese philosophy or history of culture but in a way that, that's very, very different from, from where I started when I got my degrees many decades ago.
1: Well, that's uh, quite a journey. Uh, yeah. I'm a psychologist myself, so I'm glad you found your way to our field. Yeah. Uh, how did you come upon your book's startling thesis That uh, to quote you we would not have civilization without intoxication.
0: We were always, at least I was told, that alcohol from a science, our taste for alcohol from a scientific perspective was a mistake. So, alcohol, an evolutionary mistake, it, it just happens to trigger reward networks in our brain. And so, and we figured this out. So we're like, we're kind of like rats pushing the lever to get more cocaine in our water bottle. Um, There's no real reason for it. It just, it's, it happens to uh, give us pleasure. And so we figured that out. I was also always told, always assumed that the discovery of alcohol was a mistake. So we got agriculture first. And then at some point Someone left a sourdough starter for a little bit too long and it fermented and they tried it and it made them feel good and tasted all right. And so we had beer. So I started the project with this puzzle about why something that's very costly, alcohol is extremely costly physiologically, economically, socially, in in certain ways, why it would be so pervasive and have such a long history around the world if it was just an evolutionary mistake. And so, that thesis that I came to by the end of doing my research, that um, it's actually one of the cornerstones of civilization, is that uh, it looks like we, the discovery of alcohol was not a byproduct of agriculture. It was actually the reason we started agriculture in the first place. So, I explore in the book, The Beer Before Bread Hypothesis, which is that. Hunter-gatherers were were getting together. Actually, the earliest uh, evidence we have of beer is from Israel, so from the site in, in present-day Haifa, probably 13,000 years old, thousands of years before agriculture. Uh, people were making beer, establishing breweries and caves, setting up these enormous ritual sites where they would come from all over and feast. We have remains of feasting and various types of religious rituals but also beer drinking, big vats that almost certainly held beer. So, so, and you see this pattern, this is the Fertile Crescent, but everywhere you see agriculture around the world, the first crops that get domesticated tend to be ones that have psychoactive properties. They tend to be ones that get you a little buzzed, uh, rather than crops that are nutritious. And so the argument is that we started civilization we started agriculture, which is the foundation of civilization, because of our desire to get intoxicated. So in that sense, it very directly gave rise to civilization. But then in the book, I also explore the bulk of the book is exploring the various ways in which the functions of alcohol and other types of chemical intoxication helped us to ad- adopt adapt to this agricultural lifestyle once we had fallen into it.
1: Well, there's uh, biblical support for your point of view, since the <laughs> yeah. first mention of wine in the Bible is with Noah after the flood. Uh, as yeah. everyone knows, he passes out. Serious family and social consequences follow. Yes. Uh, but, but later in <clears throat> religious history, uh, we we find that wine is used in sacred rituals in both Judaism and later in Christianity, how do you interpret these religious messages about alcohol?
0: Yes, that's the first thing he did, right? When the floods receded, is plant yeah. some vineyards. <laughs> um, you see this again. It's cross. It's not just um, the religions of the Near East. Um, you see this across the world that alcohol is at the center of ritual sacrifices, ritual celebrations. It's because religions recognize this role that alcohol plays in relaxing our inhibitions, uh, boosting our prosocial hormones, so serotonin, endorphins, and bringing people together. So one of the main functions, in, I argue, in the book that alcohol has is getting otherwise suspicious and kind of individualistic primates to coordinate in ways that are really shocking, shocking, uh, the, the level, the, if you look at any, uh, large scale society, you should be shocked to just see primates walking around interacting with strangers, um, trans- engaging in transactions, sitting patiently on buses next to each other. Um, we're not really built. <laughs> no, no, none of our primate cousins acts like this. Um, they live in small tribal bands with relatives or, or at least individuals they know, and they're intensely suspicious of strangers, potentially hostile uh, to strangers. Somehow we figured out how to move past that and live in these large scale societies where we <clears throat> we cooperate and we live together in a way that looks a lot more like uh, social insects. We look a lot more like ants or bees than we look like primates in the, when you look at the scale on which we cooperate. Alcohol is one of the tools, alcohol and religion are both tools that we've used to get people past cooperation dilemmas, get them past distrust, and uh, build bonds. Build kind of uh, new, in a way, sometimes fake families, the sense of being part of a, a larger family than our biological family. Um, and then if you use those tools in conjunction, so you're using alcohol and religion at the same time, it's an even more potent combination, I think. So, So cultural evolutionary forces have converged on certain tricks for getting primates designed to live in small-scale hunter-gatherer societies to live in large-scale communities. And two of those tricks are religion and alcohol. So we shouldn't be surprised that across the world we see them being used in conjunction.
1: Uh, But animals like intoxicants, too. Mm. Uh, you, You go into quite... A lot of detail uh, in the book about that, uh, but they just do it because it feels good and not in order to facilitate their challenges.
0: Yeah, and there in the case of non-human animals, it's it is a evolutionary mistake. So it's it's it makes us feel good too, right? So it's it is yeah. triggering pleasure networks in in humans and other animals. Um, in them, it's purely a mistake. Um, in us. There's a good reason that we actually have producing and consuming alcohol has become it it was the arguably the first thing we ever did in an organized fashion as a species. I mean that's so the biblical account, in a way, is a is a metaphor for this, right? The first thing you do when the floods recede, you plant grapes. The first things humans ever did in an organized way was start brewing beer and making wine. So that's because it it has these functions for us. So yeah, it does it hits the brains of other animals in the same way it does ours and and that's why they're attracted to it. But it's an opportunistic and accidental thing in the case case of other species. For us it's it's very deliberate and very organized and for a very good reason.
1: Well, you started off by mentioning the high cost of alcohol. Uh, Can you uh, reflect a bit on why alcoholism is so prevalent in the United States today?
0: It's estimated that, so the tendency to become an alcoholic is there's a strong genetic propensity. And it's estimated that up to 15% of the human population has a propensity to alcoholism. When you look at actual rates of alcoholism, though, they really vary cross-culturally across the world. And so I think what I argue in the book is going on here is that different cultures have different techniques for capturing the benefits of alcohol. They want to use alcohol because it uh, boosts creativity. We can talk a bit about that. Um, It boosts bonding and uh, social interaction. But it's got it's physiologically dangerous it um, can lead to social disorder and especially if you have alcoholic tendencies uh, it could be impossible for you to use safely and so i talk about the difference between what anthropologists call southern versus northern drinking cultures so northern drinking cultures tend to drink a lot of distilled liquors they tend to drink to get drunk they tend to drink just for drinking by itself not with a meal it tends to be predominantly a male activity uh, and it's also an adult activity. So kids, it's something strictly taboo for children. It's something only grownups do. And uh, drinking, getting drunk is not not only not shameful, there's a kind of maybe uh, heroic aspect to it or it's manly to, to really tie one on. And you contrast that to southern drinking cultures um, and I think that um, I'm Israeli society would probably fit this. Um, Wine is part of just daily life. You you have it at mealtime. You only drink around the meal table. It's something that everyone in the family partakes of. So kids, you know. So my model for this is Italy. My ex-wife is half Italian, so we spent a lot of time in Italy. And you know, my daughter grew up getting little bit of water down wine at the table with everyone else and you know now she's almost 15 and i'll pour a little bit of wine at dinner um real wine you know just to taste it she's actually developed quite a good palate for wine she's got she's doesn't have great vocabulary but she's she's she discriminates well, um, and so kids just learn that alcohol is something that is part of life. It's something that enhances the enjoyment of a meal. Um, you only in these cultures you tend to only drink at the meal table. You don't you don't drink away from it. Uh, drunkenness is frowned upon. So you know, getting drinking to the point that you're really visibly drunk is kind of a bit shameful, and. In those cultures, you tend to see much lower rates of alcoholism. So, you know, Italy is the the one I know the best. They, in in terms of quantity of alcohol, they drink quite a bit of alcohol. They're they're pretty high per capita in terms of alcohol consumption, but the alcoholism rates are very low. And so the reason I think you see so much alcoholism in America is because America has inherited this Northern drinking culture. And it's really in a way taken it to an extreme. Because it's combined it with uh, social isolation. So in large swaths of the US and, and Canada, it's very different there aren't good social drinking places. So in Europe, uh, in, in cities at least, at least on the in the uh, coasts in North America, You have pubs you have places that people go to after work that that reproduces more of the southern style drinking right you you're doing it with meals there's a mix of kids and older people and young people at these places and uh you're drinking in a social environment where the the presence of others and very i talk in some detail about these various social cues people use to control each other's drinking Mm -hmm. um tend to moderate your drinking and tend to keep it under control. But in the U.S., people drink at home a lot more. People drink a lot more uh, distilled liquors. They tend to not have a, a local pub that they go to. They tend to um, just drink with, with their family, ideally, around the dinner table, but often in front of the TV by themselves. And that's a recipe for unhealthy drinking.
1: Besides the genetic influence Uh, do you think there are individual differences that are significant in the dynamics of drinking? Uh, For example, are there personality factors or other factors that uh, influence whether someone is more likely to be helped or harmed by intoxication?
0: Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, I would include individual level differences like that under genetic influences. So there's genetic influences that directly relate to how you process alcohol. <clears throat> and they think that the, the propensity to alcoholism is probably related to re- the way reward networks are working in the brain. But personality traits um, could be related. So, uh, and one of the things I talk about is how people with different personalities might use alcohol in different ways. So introverts, when one line of research looks at introversion versus extroversion. And introverts typically use alcohol very strategically to turn themselves momentarily, or at least for a few hours, into extroverts when they need to. So introverts tend to um, be much more prone to using alcohol in social situations where they're having to interact with other people. Uh, And I was reading this literature, i completely resonated with us because I'm a very extreme introvert. And if I'm going to have to socialize for two hours, it certainly um, helps to have a drink or two. And it's because what it's doing is boosting uh, these kind of pro-social hormones that suddenly make you kind of more inclined to want to interact with people. And so, yeah, certainly people with different personality traits are going to use alcohol in, in different strategic ways.
1: Well, let let's turn back to evolution. Um, evolution's interested in reproduction. So just on that basis, we might expect it to be, well, ambivalent about drinking. Uh, yeah, yeah. On the one hand, well let, let me quote from your book, you write, uh, "The dopamine boost provided by alcohol." directly increases sexual desire in both males and females from fruit flies to humans. Ironically, its depressant effect simultaneously and notoriously impairs actual sexual performance, reducing genital arousal and increasing the time to orgasm in both men and women. So how should we understand this from an evolutionary point of view?
0: Well, the the trick is not just passing on your genes it's uh finding an opportunity to pass on your genes uh, also allowing those genes to flourish in the sense of being able to raise your offspring successfully and be in a culture that has resources um, so there's a lot evolution is playing a very complex multi-part game when it comes to humans and so it in terms of direct physiological impact it seems like alcohol would be a bad idea for our genes but if what it's doing psychologically is reducing your inhibitions making you more outgoing uh making you more charming to yourself and uh, actually charming to others finding other people more charming and and more attractive it could that just at the individual level could counteract the the negative physiological effects and then the really the really important functions of alcohol come in not in my view not at the individual level but at the social level so the the two main functions socially that i focus on are creativity and cooperation so alcohol we we have a problem humans have this problem where we need to be creative we're unlike any other species we're completely dependent on tools we, we literally could not survive without tools and tools need to be constantly changing the environment keeps changing we're competing with other groups that maybe have better tool sets than us and um, we need to up our game so constant innovation is crucial for human beings innovation requires what cognitive scientists refer to as lateral thinking. So kind of thinking outside the box, connecting things that aren't obviously connected. And this kind of creativity is not something you can just force algorithmic, algorithmically. You can't just sit down and kind of power through a problem and get a creative solution. Creative solutions have to come to you. And so they require a kind of cognitive relaxation that is not our normal way of being. And so one of the functions of alcohol is to downregulate the prefrontal cortex. So this is the part of our brain that's in charge of goal-directed activities, suppressing uh, desires, uh, staying on task, being disciplined, staying focused on one topic, all the kinds of things that a Say a five-year-old is not very good at. So, and it's actually the last part of the brain to mature. It doesn't fully mature until our twenties. So, we need a PFC uh, to be a functioning adult. We need a PFC, but the cost is uh, it it narrows our focus and makes it hard for us to, to engage in this kind of lateral thinking. If you look at uh, you look at lateral thinking tasks, five-year-olds radically outperform adults on these sort of creativity measures. And so what would be ideal is to be an adult, have a PFC so you can get up, get to work on time, so you don't forget your coat like my daughter did this morning because she's scattered and she can't remain <laughs> focused on anything. Um, at least she could tie her own shoes now, but um, you know that was a long time coming. Um, so you want to have a PFC, but it would be nice if you could just turn it off sometimes when you need a creative insight. And that's one of the things that alc you know, if you want, if this is your problem, alcohol is a good solution to this. It's it's short acting, um, it's it's precisely dosable. It has very consistent effects across different people, and so one function of alcohol is to make us more creative temporarily, and also crucially kind of creative in a group sense. So we're individually more creative, but we're also because our inhibitions are down, we're more willing to go out on a limb and share something that might sound stupid or that maybe we would have been embarrassed to say earlier, but turns out is actually quite a good idea. And so you know, one of the ways our genes are, you know, you can argue very indirectly but very importantly, benefiting from alcohol is it's creating creatures that can innovate or it's making it easier for those creatures to innovate. Uh, The other thing alcohol is doing is helping us get past cooperation dilemmas. So um, we constantly face these cooperation dilemmas where economists refer to them by different names. So prisoner's dilemma, uh, tragedy of the commons. But the common structure is that for you and I, We'll we'll both individually do better if we cooperate, if we work together. And yet, we are both vulnerable to what economists call defection. So if I trust you and I work for the common good, there's a danger that you're going to defect, that you're not going to cooperate. And then you'll benefit a lot and I will pay a heavy cost. And so in situations like this, ra- purely self-interested rational agents will get suboptimal outcomes. They, they won't do well. And yet if you look at humans in everyday life and throughout history, we solve these cooperation dilemmas all the time. And we do it by trusting one another. And uh, one of the ways we help, we help ourselves to trust others is to, to use alcohol. There's a very good reason that whenever you see humans having to come to an agreement, potentially hostile individuals having to bury the hatchet to sign a peace treaty or something like this. These discussions never happen until everyone sat down and started drinking together. (laughs) So, um, because what it's alcohol, in impairing the prefrontal cortex, it's making it harder for us to lie. It's actually making it harder for us, uh, easier for us to detect lying and it's boosting these these hormones like serotonin and endorphins that that make us more trusting and willing to um, bond with other people and so it's possible that alcohol you know so maybe alcohol increasing the time to orgasm. <laughs> that seems, you know, on a very narrow time scale, like a bad thing for the genes. Um, but they're not just worried about orgasms. They're worried about those orgasms producing viable offspring that are going to be part of successful cultures that are going to be able to um pass on their genes because they'll survive and thrive. Um so so yeah, you have to look at the the cultural when you're trying to evaluate the the pros and cons from an evolutionary perspective. You can't be looking very narrowly just at individual um, genetic replication. You've gotta be thinking about, because humans are so social, you have to be thinking about um, the success of a particular set of genes in a particular individual who's part of a particular society. And and you need success on all those levels. The individual needs to be successful within his or her society, but then the society, the culture itself has to be successful.
1: Right, that's true. And, and that was a very helpful explanation about the brain mechanism uh, for those listeners who weren't sure whether they just feel more creative uh, yeah. when they've had something to drink where they actually are. Um, is the, are the same mechanism, brain mechanisms at play with marijuana and other drugs? Yes.
0: So uh, what are the common traits of intoxicants in general, so that would include cannabis and psychedelics, um, drugs like kava that they use in the Pacific, is that they're depressing the function of the prefrontal cortex, and that's really the key to getting these these creativity gains. Um, you can also so experimentally they've gotten these creativity boosts by using a transcranial magnet to <laughs> zap your prefrontal cortex and kind of take it offline for a little bit. Um, but that's a pretty modern technology; it's very expensive. So yes, uh, humans around the world have figured out various substances that will uh basically uh, either shut down the pfc or in the case of psychedelics they're 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 down regulating the pfc but they're also really deep patterning the brain um, they're allowing parts of the brain that don't normally communicate to start chatting to each other which is really disorienting which is why uh, psychedelics are very disorienting but which can lead to to really creative insights um the problem, the reason alcohol is the go-to, though. So all of these these intoxicants have always been associated with artists and poets and musicians, and so I'm arguing there's a, there's a very good um, psychological reasons for this. And but alcohol has been the dominant one, and for good reason. It's it's got relatively consistent uh, effects across individuals. Whereas one of the problems with cannabis is that it is really variable in individual to individual. So some people it makes very en- energizes them and makes them very social. They want to go out and dance and go to parties and talk to people. Other people like me, it, it makes me extremely paranoid for about 15 minutes and then I fall asleep. <laughs> so it's not really very useful for me um it's hard to of the party as well. yeah yeah i yeah, know it's hard, it's terrible and i you know and everyone's always been like well you have to try this strain or that strain i've tried every strain you can imagine they all do the same thing to me so and this is not we this is a known issue with cannabis it's very variable um it's hard to dose so you have to if you're smoking it you have to know kind of how to hold it in your lungs and um with psychedelics the problem is they're they're so disengaging you from reality and for such a long time that they're not really useful on a daily basis or as a regular creativity aid. Um, and so Michael, Michael Pollan, I don't know if you know about his, he has a relatively recent book called How to Change Your Mind. Yes. And he's focused pr- primarily on psychedelics. And he has a great analogy there that was very important for me in thinking about this. He compares, uh, he compares the effect of psychedelics on cultural evolution to the effect of mutagens on genetic evolution. So if you have a mutagen like radiation, it screws up DNA and alters it in a way that usually is fatal, that usually is very bad. So it, it's, it's introducing variation. Variation is the engine that drives evolution. You need variation for evolution to work. But most variants are, use, are harmful or useless, uh, but every once in a while you get a really good one, and that's how genetic evolution um, functions. He's arguing psychedelics for culture are like that. You, you take some mushrooms or some LSD, you completely de-pattern your brain, and you introduce this entropy and randomness that 99.9% of the time is producing nonsense. So if you look at, I mean, I talk in the book about journal entries I've written on psychedelics, and and they're almost entirely nonsense. Um, But his argument is, you know, that 0.1 percent maybe is something useful that is radically different, and that could be the equivalent of a kind of breakthrough genetic um, variation where this is something we needed. And so he thinks psychedelics are this this tool we use to introduce. Variation and randomness to cultural evolution, and I would argue that uh, I argue that alcohol is, is very similar. It's just a lower dose version of that. So you aren't getting the same degree of creativity because you're not depatterning the brain in such a radical way. But you're also more likely to get something useful than if you you do mushrooms or or LSD. So they they all have a kind of all of these various chemical intoxicants have roles to play I think in in human life and they have historically, but there's a really good reason that alcohol is the king of intoxicants and is so common cross culturally because it's 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 a it's it's just the right amount of altering your
1: mind. So uh, why? Uh, do you think? Uh, does the founder of the field of evolutionary medicine, Randolph Nessie, who's uh, been a guest on this podcast, why do you think he and others uh, believe that our attraction to drugs and alcohol is merely an evolutionary mistake or a side effect of other things?
0: Yeah, Randy's a good friend of mine, and we, had, we actually had a discussion about this the last time I saw him at ASU. Um, he's intrigued but not convinced by my arguments. Um, And I think that in in Randy's case, I mean, he's told me this, he's just seen the impact, the negative impact of alcohol physiologically and the negative impact of alcoholism in a way that makes it really difficult for him as a doctor to not think of it as a pathology you know to not think of it as something dangerous that um we need to eliminate a taste for in human beings um and at least the last time we spoke he's still not convinced that the the advantages that i'm arguing for so these you know creativity bonding all these other things actually would have in our evolutionary history paid for the costs. so this is a it is a you know, it's an open scientific debate whether or not these benefits could have or still do outweigh the costs. But my my main point in the book is just that we tend to not even consider the benefits. And so this is one of my my problems with, I think the way Randy is at least historically thought about this problem and the way his colleagues do is that we tend to think about alcohol in this purely medicalized way. So we're thinking only about its physiological impacts. And if you think of it that way, it's ba- it's just definitely bad uh, It's if the net impacts are negative. And so then you're gonna, if you look at the scientific research on alcohol, it's almost entirely about that. It's about the negative physiological impacts or it's about alcoholism. Um, and how to, you know, how to treat alcoholism and what the danger um, signs for alcoholism are. And so alcohol is treated purely as this kind of medical problem. What I'm hoping to do is by making a case for these bigger social individual and social functions, at least get gets something on the other side on the table. So yes, it's hurting our livers. Yes, it's increasing cancer risk. Yes, it's it's super addictive. Now, th- this is the one problem with alcohol is that it's it's really physiologically addictive. If, if I could change, you know, if cultural engineers could have changed one thing about it is, would have been that. Um, and that's one of the, the advantages to cannabis and psychedelics is that they're not phys- physiologically addictive in the way alcohol is. Um, but I, if we're going to make a decision about just modern day humans do we make a place for alcohol in our individual lives as modern day administrators university administrators CEOs of companies do we make a place for alcohol in our professional lives to in our institutions I think this is a decision that we can only make when we have all of the data at our disposal so not just all the stuff we've typically had, medicalized information about the harms which typically then on the what's on the positive side of the ledger just fun <laughs> you know kind of pleasure or fun right. which if it's if it's known c- really clear quantifiable costs and it's only being pitted against fun fun is going to lose but if hmm. on the other side of the ledger you add yeah fun but also it creativity And social bonding, reduced anxiety, um, all these other benefits. Then we have a conversation, and then we can make intelligent decisions about whether we want to include alcohol in our lives. Um, But you're right that Randy remained unconvinced ultimately by the arguments in my book, and that's that's what science is about, right? You have uh, disagreements about the relative weight of different functions of things. So so there remain um, very good evolutionary thinkers who have access to the same data that I have access to who come to very different conclusions
1: well how given your point of view uh, how how do you view societies and cultures that reject or forbid the use of drugs and alcohol recreational drugs and alcohol? Um, You have the Mormons, you have Muslims, Mm -hmm. uh, you have many sects of Buddhists. How do they fit into your thinking on the subject?
0: Yeah, they're an interesting case. and So I talk about them um, in the last chapter of the book. Um, In one way, they're part of my argument for the functional effects of alcohol. Because if alcohol were only a mistake if it were only a parasite of the brain that had only negative costs cultures that successfully ban it should have a wild advantage over other cultures and it's not like this prohibition is a new idea Um, we've been trying to ban the consumption of alcohol for as long as we've had it so some of the earliest um, documents we have from early china are you know very harsh prohibition edicts anyone caught drinking alcohol will get immediately executed um, one of the earliest myths from china is that the this mythical sage king yu was apparently presented with beer for the first time so this woman invents beer and she presents it to you um, and he drinks it and he enjoys it makes him feel good and so he executes the woman <laughs> and says we should never make this stuff because it's so dangerous it will destroy civilization um and yet you know the early chinese kept drinking on a on an epic scale and so this is one of the data points for me is that cultural groups that ban alcohol been around forever and yet they're surprisingly unsuccessful um if you look at a map of the world now and look at you know where prohibition is really in effect, not just nominally in effect. It's not a very big part of the world. Um, and so so why, and it's got, I argue it's got to be the case. It's because people, groups that prohibit alcohol are gaining the benefits of doing so. There are definite benefits, but then they're in, they must be incurring some costs in terms of innovation or bonding. Um, I also talk about the fact that a lot of groups that ban alcohol substitute some other practice that gives you the same effect and so if you look for instance at pentecostals they don't drink it's forbidden to take chemical intoxicants but they have these long worship ceremonies where they get themselves work themselves up into these altered states of mind through chanting and singing sometimes sleep deprivation um to where they start speaking in tongues and you know handling snakes and uh and to and to an outside observer look drunk and this is actually um you know in the new testament there's a story about these um these christian believers who uh are speaking in tongues are are doing these things and outsiders look at them and say oh they're just drunk and um it's, I forget if it's Peter or Paul says, no, they're they're not drunk on alcohol. They're drunk on the Holy Spirit. Um, they're infused with the Holy Spirit. So groups, it's, it's significant in my view that groups that ban chemical intoxicants then substitute, often substitute some other practice that's going to get them to that same state of down prefrontal cortex and boosted serotonin and endorphins. Um, it's just that those techniques are really time consuming and, and sometimes painful. Uh, so other groups use actual you know, mortif- ritual mortification and things like that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that often the ban on alcohol, the target's not really alcohol. Um, the target is setting yourself off as a group. And so I think it's very significant that the Mormons ban not just alcohol, but caffeine. So if they were really trying to just get rid of the, the cost of alcohol and capture positive functional benefits, they should hang on to caffeine. <laughs> because caffeine is great. Caffeine is really useful. It helps prefrontal cortex. It's, it helps productivity. Um, but they're rejecting that, too. And they're, you know, they're sometimes wearing, you know, traditionally wearing strange clothes and things like that. Um, in these cases, I think the ban on alcohol, and, and historians have made the argument that this is what's going on with early Islam as well. It's not really about banning alcohol. It's about setting yourself apart as a group. Um, it's saying we are special because we don't do this thing. And then if the thing that you're not doing is actually really pleasurable, and it's something that most people like to do, it's also a costly signal. It's something, and this is um, comes out of cognitive science, evolutionary theory of religion, that mm-hmm. sometimes these ritual obligations are serving this function because I'm doing this really unpleasant thing or I'm foregoing a very pleasant thing. And that is showing you that I take our religion seriously and I'm I'm a good team player. I'm part of the group. And so I think that when you look at these these bans on alcohol, the the function seems to be more group cohesion and signaling than actually trying to, uh, you know, assign that banning alcohol is really a net positive for a group.
1: Well, that's really interesting Um, because that uh, explains what would seem to be anomalous behavior in in cultures that thrive. Um, you, You cite substantial research that favors Moderate drinkers over both heavy drinkers and abstainers uh, on so many measures from health to intimacy to happiness. And uh, uh, do you think it's more difficult to be a moderate user today?
0: In some ways, yes. So there's, there's. I argue at the end of the book that there are two recent innovations that both make it hard, harder to drink in moderation and make alcohol much more dangerous than it has historically been. So one of them is, so I, I call them distillation and isolation. So the first one is distilled liquors. So this this was actually another surprise when I was doing the research for the book. I just, I guess I never really thought about it, but I always assumed that we've always had distilled liquors at our, our disposal, but that's not true. Uh, distillation, the concept has been around for a long time. Aristotle talks about it. Uh, people have known about the idea for a long time. But pulling off distillation in practice is actually really difficult technically. You ha- you have to have metallurgy and glass blowing, You have to be able to control temperatures really precisely. It's, it's actually quite hard to do in practice, especially on a large scale. And so... We did not have wide-scale access to distilled liquors until the 1600s, 1700s in Europe, and a little bit earlier in China, probably, but not that much earlier. And in a, in an evolutionary story that I'm... So that seems like a, when I say that, people are like, well, that's still a really long time ago. But it's not. It's in evolutionary terms, a blink of an eye. Um, I'm, I'm telling a story that starts 10 million years ago when our, our first primate ancestors of ours first adapted to eating overripe fruit that had alcohol in it. So that's yesterday. So, and, and distilled liquors are, even though it's still just ethanol is the drug, they are so much more powerful than the, the drinks we have been drinking for most of our history that I think they really should be treated as a completely different drug. So, so beers naturally fermented beers and wines come with a built-in safety feature, which is that, uh, you know, alcohol yeasts are taking sugar and converting it to alcohol. They're relatively resistant to alcohol, which is why they're using it as basically biological warfare weapon against the bacteria. So the yeast are fighting with the bacteria to get access to the nutrients. Um, They kill off the bacteria with the alcohol because they're relatively resistant, but they're not infinitely resistant. And so at a certain point, they shut themselves down with the alcohol they produced. And so that's, that's convenient for us because it puts a natural cap on how strong alcoholic beverages can get. And we can get beers and wines pretty strong now because we've been Selectively breeding yeast for thousands of years to try to do this. But historically, you really couldn't beers clocked in at maybe two, three percent ABV, um, and fruit wines a bit higher than that, but not that much higher. And those are those are beverages that you can drink, you could drink them all day and really never get dangerously drunk um, just because the the alcohol content is so low. And and that'll keep you at that, that kind of sweet spot, I argue that most of the social and individual benefits from alcohol drinking come at about 0.08 blood alcohol content. So that's about two modern beers and for for an adult male. right? depends on your body weight and if you've eaten. The, the alcoholic beverages we've had were des- essentially designed to keep us at or below that, that sweet spot. But then with distilled liquors, you can get you know, 90% ABB. you can get these really strong um, substances. And if you're drinking those, you can blow right past 0.08 into really dangerous territory in 15, 20 minutes if you're doing shots. And so we have access. We One new problem is we have access to this really dangerous form of alcohol. And I'm not sure that we've had time, certainly not genetically, but I don't even think culturally, we've had time to adapt to that danger. So that's that's one new problem. And the other is this one I alluded to before, of isolation, that we're increasingly, historically, you never had private ac- access to alcohol. Alcohol was always something you drank in public. Um, <clears throat> in cultures where they produce alcohol in the private home, there are usually strong taboos about not drinking your own alcohol. So you produce beer at home, but you have to go to your neighbor's house to drink their beer. Um, This is very sensible, and it's because when you're drinking in public, when you're drinking with other people, there are all sorts of uh, safeguards. So most cultures have toasting rituals where you you can't drink until someone makes a toast, or there's a toastmaster who's in charge of passing around whatever alcohol you're drinking, and you can't drink until it comes to you even in really informal situations like a pub, you think about a European pub, there are subtle checks on your drinking behavior. Um, You tend, people who are out drinking together tend to drink in rounds. And so if I'm consuming too fast and I finish my beer before you finish your beer, I have to wait. It's most cultures. It'd be kind of weird for me to order just for myself another beer. I have to wait for everyone to be done. And then we order another round that, moderates my drinking, um, even subtle signals, you know, so you're at the dinner table and you pour yourself another glass of wine after dessert and you get the stink eye from your mother-in-law, <laughs> you know, that'll, that's going to stop you in your tracks, right? You're going to not finish that glass of wine. Um, so there are all these ways in which humans socially regulate each other's drinking. But again, if you're home drinking alone in front of the TV, all that's gone, um, and, and that makes it really more, and especially if the, what you're drinking is the still liquors, which are super addictive and super powerful, um, it, I think it becomes much more challenging to drink in a healthy way. And I think we've really seen this on steroids during COVID lockdowns, so, you know, People, in, at least in North America, there was already this trend toward isolated at-home drinking. And then COVID lockdowns just made it worldwide and made it really bad, right? So people are stuck at home. They don't have their normal routines anymore, so you're not going to work. Um, you know, time of day starts to not matter as much. And then you have access to, you know, in, in Vancouver, in the beginning, early stages of lockdown. I could order I could order food and I could also have you know a case of vodka delivered to my apartment. <laughs> and that's crazy. Like to have, you know, be home alone with access to enough alcohol to kill an entire village of people um is is really evolutionarily unprecedented and it's it's asking it's really asking a lot of us to be able to drink moderately when these safeguards have been removed that we've traditionally had. Um, So yeah, I think there are a lot of challenges to drinking safely for modern people. And that's where we have to be. We have to step up and be mindful and try to reintroduce some safety measures ourselves.
1: Well, my last question was going to be asking you for advice about how to drink (laughs) in the sweet spot. But you have really outlined it all of what, what people need to do not drink alone stick with wine and beer and uh, preferably have some food and sociability with it or ritual so I will yeah. um, I, I'll thank you for sharing your insights into a, a subject that's really as old as history and as current as today's news Uh. But before you go, can you tell us what you're working on now?
0: So I've got uh, both an academic monograph. Well, I'm working on it, but I run a big project called the Database of Religious History. Um, and so that's a fair amount of my time. So this is a worldwide, throughout history, uh, attempt to, it's kind of online, quantitative, qualitative encyclopedia of the religious historical record. Um, But in terms of writing, uh, I'm I'm working on a monograph. I'll start a monograph soon about cognitive science and theories of ethics. So um, essentially trying to meld ethical theory with contemporary uh, moral psychology and neuroscience and and argue that this particular model of ethics that you see in early China, uh, which is called virtue ethics, is, is... a psychologically more plausible description of how real human beings make moral decisions and how we train people to be moral than the, the theories that have been dominant in the West more recently, deontology and utilitarianism. Um, so that's the kind of in the weeds academic project. And then I also have a project where I'm going to write about, I think. Um, sounds straight, I'm going to write about the Northern California coast, and the kind of daily pleasures of eating and drinking, but also nature and growing things and um, engaging with the environment in various ways, as a lens into pleasure, Um, how important pleasure is for human beings and and this would all be in the service of a kind of defense of philosophical hedonism so um, in a way rescuing hedonism from its modern connotations of you know kind of drunken sexual abandon uh, and and bring it closer to the original meaning the, the original ancient greek meaning of um you know, pleasure, but pleasure understood very broadly, and and focusing primarily on things like intellectual pleasure, and delight. So, um, so that's a, probably the next trade book.
1: Well, all three of those projects sound extremely interesting and very important. So good luck with them, and uh, we'll ca- try to keep our eyes out for uh, publication and access to it. Um, right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Ted, and sharing your insight and your work on a subject that uh, most of us find very interesting. Uh, and and thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.
0: Well, th- thanks for having me.